Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by my favorite college in America, Hillsdale College, which proudly refuses every penny of government funding to remain independent. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. It's all quiet in the underground bunker. Doors closed, locks bolted. But the great one isn't just resting on his laurels. He's making sure your weekend is even better by giving you his best. This is the best of Mark Levin. About five weeks till the book comes out, The Democrat Party Hates America. Certain pre-publication copies have been sent out to certain individuals. I want to thank my friend uh, Leo Terrell. Very unsolicited, very kind of him to post what he posted. But there'll be a lot of uh, thinking and commenting on this now, I believe. You get a lot of people who say, I don't understand. How do we as a country allow our border to be open? I don't understand. How do we allow these people to loot? How do we this? We don't do any of this. We're not allowing anything. And until people understand, until they understand, until the Republican Party comes to grips until the Republican leadership in the Senate comes to grips with what, Mark? With the fact that the Democrat Party is essentially mimicking autocratic parties all over the world, particularly in Marxist countries. They're never going to understand what's taking place. Ever. This language control, you're going to learn in the book, there's, there's these, there are these professors that have been pushing this for years in this country and elsewhere, that the English language, that words in the English language, that phrases in the English language are imperialistic, colonialistic. They're Marxist professors, and they're teaching this. They're Marxist professors out there. Why do you think they have these guests, these professors on MSNBC and CNN and elsewhere, writing op-eds in the slimes and the, and the compost? who say you must destroy the English language in order to destroy the white dominant culture. I, I'm not making it up. You're going to learn all about it. The footnotes will be there. Look it up. Read this, this so-called scholarship all by yourself. This is what's taking place. It's like the word equity. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. The word equity means what? What does it mean? They all started from a different base. Therefore, even if you have equality, you can never achieve equity. Until what? Until you destroy the country. And of course, then you have violent totalitarianism. This is what we're in the middle of. Now, those of you who listen to this program or watch my shows, you get it. But there's 330 million people in this country. And because I study history and philosophy and all the rest of it, I know what I see. I know what I, I feel. I know what I smell. And it is this revolution that's consuming us. This is why there's almost no pushback in the media with these constant indictments of Donald Trump. And I'll get to Georgia probably in the next hour. It's like big deal. It is a huge deal. 
the statutes they're using, in the cities they're bringing these cases? Why even bother having a trial? Why even go through the motions? Because that's all we're doing. Which brings me to the liars and the reprobates and the sleazeballs. And they always find new ones on MSNBC as well as CNN. There's a, gave it by the name, there's a man by the name of Dave Arenberg. He's a former state senator in Florida. He's a state attorney for Bomb Beach County. And they bring him on to the Morning Joe show because the Morning Schmo lives in Palm Beach County, Jupiter. And they probably kiss each other's ass, so to speak. So he brings this nobody onto his nothing channel. If I didn't play, you wouldn't know about it. But you need to know what's going on out there under the radar. And I want you to listen to this because this is the war on the judge in Florida. Unlike the judge in Washington, D.C., where it's been discovered and reminded, I should say, of an AP story in which Judge Chutnik, who's handling the Trump case, proclaimed that January 6th and the 2020 Black Lives Matter riots have absolutely nothing in common. Where she was effectively defending the 2020 riots, which involved all the, the assaults, the burglaries, the arson, death, murder, anti-Semitism, anti-Americanism. That's nothing compared to January 6th, she says. And that is the mindset of the phony judge who's overseeing the case of Donald Trump. Sickening. Absolutely sickening. Trump doesn't have a shot. Doesn't even have a chance. Anyway, one of the things I have argued, actually, is that according to the Department of Justice guidelines for prosecutors, it says they shall use grand juries in the district, I'm paraphrasing, where the events that are being investigated occurred, or certainly most of them. Well, the events involving the documents of Mar-a-Lago didn't occur in Washington, D.C. The vast majority of them occurred in Florida, South Florida. And yet the federal prosecutor, Smith, who worked for Eric Holder, and it's tight with James Comey, he did all the investigations, the witness testimony, all of it, in front of a Democrat Washington, D.C. grand jury, where he got his indictments, the vast majority of them. And then he says, you know what, we're going to move this down to the grand jury in Florida, which heard none of the testimony firsthand, none of it. And they were asked to rubber stamp what was done in Washington, D.C. And so he has this grand jury still functioning, does Smith, in Washington, D.C. And he throws a few more indictments out there. He gets it out of the grand jury in Washington, D.C. Then he shoots it to the grand jury down there. And the federal judge there, Cannon, is saying, wait, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. The rules of the Department of Justice and common sense and fairness tell us you're supposed to do stuff with the grand jury here in my district, not up there in Washington, D.C. How do you explain yourselves? For using that venue, not this venue, particularly given the Department of Justice, I would argue, says, thou shall 
Well, I had my buddy Jim Trusty on, former Trump lawyer, one of the most fantastic litigators, I think. I don't know how he lost him, but he needs him. And we discussed this. Cut one, go. Talk about Judge Cannon for a second. I haven't talked to you since that very interesting order that came out a couple of days ago. She did a couple of things that seemed bizarre. So let's stop. So they talk in advance. Scarborough is now one of them and has been. Uh, he is a complete media whore, among other things. And brings in this Democrat state prosecutor. They've obviously discussed this before, but look at the smear on this judge. Scarborough being a misogynist, I guess, and all that. Her ruling, her comments seem bizarre. What comment was bizarre? Now they bring in the state attorney for Palm Beach County, where Joe Scarborough lives. Go ahead. He did. She did something that Trump's lawyers didn't even ask for. Question the propriety of the grand jury that exists in D.C. and expose it to the public. You're allowed to have another grand jury. Let's let's hold on a second. The judge isn't required to wait for anything. It's obvious to anybody who spent any time in a federal courtroom or doing anything at the federal level that this is not only unusual, it is bizarre absolutely bizarre it doesn't happen all the time i would ask dave arenberg if it happens all the time give me the 20 times that it happened hey jerk give me the 20 times that it's happened 20 times in the last year 20 times in the last five years let's see it they just say stuff that's all that matters i mean after all it's an msnbc audience and by the way comcast owns msnbc right mr producer Why don't you focus on your damn business? How hard can it be? Cables in the ground, to the house, to the box, and don't slice them! Go ahead. He knows that in cases there are more than one grand jury. Often there are more than one grand jury. Why would she expose... Uh, Hey, Joe, as somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about, that would be you. There's often more than one grand jury. You have the grand jury in Washington doing the investigation and then handing over its indictments to a grand jury in Florida. Can you point one more case where that ever happened? At least in my lifetime, I don't remember any, but can you point to one? What is the justification for this? Joe doesn't ask, hey, Dave Iran, I know you're a BSer. I know you're a former state senator. I know you're a Democrat hack. I know you're a state attorney in Palm Beach County. Tough job, I guess. But Dave... Can you give me another example, Dave, being an expert on this subject at the federal level? Hey, Dave, can you can you point out another case in which something like this has happened where the entire investigation occurs in Washington, D.C., and then when after they indict, they just send it to another grand jury? Can you? Can you, Dave? How about you, Joe? Can you? Jackass. Go ahead. And jury. You know, it's interesting, Joe. Uh, Trump lawyer... Trusty, Jim Trusty was on a right-wing show. Right-wing show, you punk. I'm glad you watched. Nothing right-wing about my show. Is this guy, uh, is he wearing tight pants or something, Mr. Reducer? As he squeals? Since the movie Deliverance, maybe it is. You know, we got two actors here. We got Joe Scarbo, the banjo player. And we've got uh, Dave Aron, who apparently is Ned Beatty. Right-wing show. This is how they both talk. So let me tell you how this works. Scarborough says, can you come on? 
sure, I, I need your help on this grand jury thing. Sure, I'm a state attorney here. I'll whore for you just like you do on your show all the time, Joe. And by the way, would you talk about this right-wing show? Mr. Producer, would you ask Dave or Ron, Mr. Tough Guy Prosecutor in Palm Beach, to come on the program? Go ahead. Said there's a problem with having this separate grand jury. This was the day before the ruling came out. And so it made some people think that was that a message sent from Trump's team to the judge? Now, wow, gonna- uh, Trump's team. First of all, Justy doesn't talk to trust Trump's team. He's a former um, lawyer. I don't talk to trust lawyers. I don't even know who they are. So what is he talking about? Dave Aron, excuse me, Aron Berger, Aron Berg. Dave Arenberg, whatever the hell his name is. So some people are saying there was a message sent. Who? Other than you goons on MSNBC. No, there was a message sent. It's really bizarre. You cannot believe these people, folks. They lie and lie. Hey, Dave Arenberg, I'm calling you a filthy liar. Why don't you come on this program and defend yourself, Mr. Tough Guy? You gutless, pathetic coward. Why don't you come on this program? My producer's going to be in touch with you, Dave. And then I want you to come on the show. Rather than have your head so far up Joe Scarborough's butt. Come here like a man. Can I say man? Come here like a whatever you are. Go ahead. Is anyone of impropriety, but it is peculiar that she decided to do that when... No one asked for that to be briefed. A and judge she said, doesn't have to be asked about that. She's sitting there, a-hole, overseeing the case, and the judge, excuse me, and the prosecutor sending indictments down from Washington, D.C. to her district for a trial. Yeah, but he's asking her, how could she possibly? That's how. God. Mark Levin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Making your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. Making a lot of news, you know, about Hunter Biden's lawyer stepping down because he might be brought into some indictment charges later as a as a witness. Who cares with what's going on in this country? Why do I care about that? I don't. I'm going to read something to you, America, from the dorm report. From the Dorham Report, that's right. Based on the review of Crossfire Hurricane and related intelligence activities, 
We conclude that the department and the FBI failed to uphold their important mission of strict fidelity to the law, connection with certain events and activities described in this report. As noted, former FBI attorney Kevin Kleinsmith committed a crime by fabricating language in an email that was material to the FBI obtaining a FISA surveillance order. In other instances, FBI personnel working in that same FISA application displayed at best a cavalier attitude towards accuracy and completeness. FBI personnel also repeatedly disregarded important requirements that they continue to seek renewals of that FISA surveillance while acknowledging both then and in hindsight they didn't genuinely believe there was probable cause to believe that the target was knowingly engaged in clandestine intelligence activities on behalf of a foreign power. Our investigation also revealed that senior FBI personnel displayed a serious lack of analytical rigor towards the information they received, especially information received from politically affiliated persons and entities. This information in part triggered and sustained Crossfire Hurricane and contributed to the subsequent need for Special Counsel Mueller's investigation. In particular, there was significant reliance on investigative leads provided or funded directly or indirectly by Trump's political opponents. Department did not even did not adequately examine or question these materials and the motivations of those providing them, even when, at about the same time, the director of the FBI and others learned of significant or potentially contrary information. Throughout the duration of Crossfire Hurricane, facts and circumstances that were inconsistent with the premise that Trump or persons associated with the Trump campaign were involved in a collusive or conspiratorial relationship with the Russian government were ignored or simply assessed away. Indeed, from even before the opening of Crossfire Hurricane, some of those most directly involved in the subsequent investigation had expressed their open disdain for Trump, asked about when they would uh, open an investigation on Trump, asserted that they would prevent Trump from becoming president. As discussed throughout this report, our investigations revealed that the stated <coughs> basis for opening a full investigation to determine whether individuals associated with the Trump campaign were winning and or coordinating activities with the government of Russia was seriously flawed. Again, the FBI's failure to critically analyze information that ran counter to the narrative of a Trump-Russia collusive relationship exhibited throughout Crossfire Hurricane is extremely troublesome. In other words, Hillary Clinton, the Democrat Party, their lawyers, and the Obama administration interfered with the election of 2016 to try and stop Donald Trump from being elected. Nobody was charged with false claims of fraud. Nobody was charged with attempting with attempting to interfere with the election. Nobody was charged with a RICO violation. Nobody was charged with a damn thing. Except that one junior lawyer for falsifying an email, whiting out something and putting the opposite meaning when they saw the FISA application. What about it, Mr. Producer? Nobody was charged. 
Not at the federal level, not at the state level, not at any level. And reporters got Pulitzer Prizes for regurgitating what the state party, the Democrat party, was leaking to the state media. Nobody was indicted for anything. The Democrats have challenged election after election on the floor of the House, in the courts, and elsewhere. Elsewhere. Every Republican president who gets elected is illegitimate. George W. Bush was said to be illegitimate. Donald Trump was said to be illegitimate. And now, the criminalization of this entire process is shocking. Chris Christie said today, and of course whatever he says is so crucially important, they have a right to make these legal challenges, and when they're over, that's the end of it. Uh, No, big boy, that's not the way it works. Congress makes the final decision. Not a district court, not a circuit court, not even the Supreme Court. Congress makes the final decision. Even if Congress, in the Bush v. Gore case, had decided it would ignore the Supreme Court, and it would count ballots, excuse me, would count electors a different way, Congress would prevail. Period. So it's not what the legal process says, it's what the political process and the constitutional process says. Congress has the final say. Congress decides if there's fake electors or there's not fake electors. Congress decides if a close election goes one way or another. You don't criminalize these decisions. Presidents are free to tell somebody, you know, see if you can find another 11 or 12,000 votes. It's not assumed that that's a crime. Presidents are free to contact secretaries of state, governors, state legislators, asking them to see what they can do to reverse the election. It doesn't mean they're committing a crime. None of this is criminal. False claims of fraud? You want to hear false claims of fraud, America? We would have to we would have to open Yankee Stadium and ship all the politicians in Washington DC to Yankee Stadium who will be charged with false claims of fraud. And unfortunately, I've had to do this before, and I won't do it as long as it is. It goes on for 12, 13 minutes. Just a few minutes of this, Democrats, in every recent presidential election where Republicans have won, Democrats making false claims of fraud. Go. You can run the best campaign. You can even become the nominee. And you can have the election stolen from you. How can you win with Russian interference, though? That's, That's a real what I'm thing. scared about no, in 2020. But, but rightly. Because right. I think he's an illegitimate president that didn't really win. So how do you, you know, fight against that in 2020? You are absolutely right. He is an illegitimate president in my mind. Would you be my vice presidential candidate? <laughs> Folks, look, I absolutely agree. Trump didn't actually win the election in 2016. He lost the election. And he was put in the office because the Russians interfered. Trump knows he's an illegitimate president. The president-elect, although legally elected, is not legitimate. I don't see this. 
president-elect as a legitimate president. You said you believe that Russia's interference altered the outcome of the election. I do. We have a president who, if in fact it is proven, uh, has been assisted by the Russians and may in fact not be a legitimate president. The one thing that Trump is fearful of uh, when it comes to his being president is that finally we will see how illegitimate his victory actually was. I have an objection. I object to the 15 votes from the state of North Carolina. I object because people are horrified. He's an illegitimate president. Do you believe Trump is illegitimate president? What I believe is that there's no question that the outcome of this election was affected by the Russian interference. So stop, stop. What about all the false claims of fraud? What about it, America? What about the conspiracy to obstruct an election? What about the conspiracy to prevent, to prevent Donald Trump, the rightful winner, from taking office? What about it? What about all the Democrat lawyers involved? Involved? in pushing the Russia collusion argument. What about them? How come none of them are facing sanctions or disbarment? How come none of them have been charged? We have the dorm report that lays it out. Chapter and verse. If Fannie Willis, or whatever the hell her name is, Fannie Willis, if her charges are legitimate. Its mischarges are legitimate. How is it that we just realized that these are campaign crimes? How is it that Joseph Kennedy, Sr., wasn't charged with a phalanx of crimes and didn't do prison time? How is it that John Kennedy, oh yes, John Kennedy, who stole the nomination from Hubert Humphrey and Lyndon Johnson and then stole the presidency from Richard Nixon in Cook County, in West Virginia, in Texas. How is it that John Kennedy wasn't indicted if these, in fact, are long-cherished criminal charges that would be applied to any party in president. How is it that Lyndon Johnson didn't go to the prison, didn't go to prison after stealing an election, first for the House of Representatives, then for the Senate? How is that possible? And how is it possible that Hillary Clinton who destroyed 30,000 emails, cell phones, mishandled classified information, made false statements about it, obstructed justice, isn't in federal prison. How is it that Bill Clinton, Mr. Classified Videos in the Sox drawer, how is it that he's not in federal prison? How is it possible? That Joseph Kennedy Sr., John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Hillary Clinton, and Bill Clinton aren't all in federal or state prison, or weren't. We know the answer to this. 
used to be an understanding between the two parties, the party in power and the party out of power. Don't criminalize these elections. Politics is rough. Politics has to be resolved politically. And ultimately, for president and vice president, it has to be resolved by Congress. You don't take garden variety criminal statutes, or even criminal statutes that are ridiculous, like the Klan statute, the Enron statute, the espionage statute, and use those in perverse ways to go after your opponents. False claims of fraud? Do you realize how many politicians would be doing time in prison? Find me some votes? That's now a crime? Attempting to to persuade state legislators to appoint a new slate of electors? Just the attempt? Will wind up with lawyers being indicted? Conspiracy to change the outcome of an election? That's what all election challenges are. She even goes across state lines, does Fannie, and Arizona, Pennsylvania, and so forth, claiming they did the same thing in those states. That there's this grand mob conspiracy. And it's so big, we're going to throw all 19 defendants together. Let them figure it out. Sounds like Iran, doesn't it? Iran. Mark Levin. You are listening to the best of Mark Levin. The National Popular Vote Compact, again discussed in the Democrat Party Hates America. In fact, a couple of people reading it whom you would know say this book is so encyclopedic. I don't mean in terms of reading. It flows. They said almost like 1984. But the information in the book was so thorough and extensive, and that's why it took me 16 months. It's the best book I've ever written, particularly given the times we live in. So this effort, the National Popular Voting Compact, is being pushed by left-wing groups, Soros-funded groups, billionaire dark money groups, and the Democrat Party. And Democrat states, you know, have legislatures and governors who have signed these bills. And they say whoever wins the national popular vote, the electors in that state, regardless of how the people in the state vote, regardless how the people of Maryland vote, the people of Minnesota vote, and so forth and so on, D.C., a non-state, that they will agree that all their electors all their electors, regardless of the local voting, you have states like Wisconsin, that those votes will go toward the person who wins the national popular vote. So they want to change the electoral college system effectively without amending the Constitution. Could be the biggest power grab in Democrat Party history which, of course, does final damage to our society. And so, they've gotten together this compact, 
And they're about 80 votes away from getting this, Mr. Producer. Enough states have already signed on, Democrat states. Now, isn't that the greatest interference in electoral politics in history? But that's not even the point. It's the mindset. It's like H.R. 1, how to destroy the voting system. The national popular vote system. The Democrat Party is out to destroy the voting system. Only it can win legitimately. Whether it's the national popular vote compact. Whether it is censorship through Twitter. Whether it is the government through the dorm report. Whether it is prosecutors and so forth. And why is it? Because they do not want the voting system to be competitive. Not now, not ever. They're not about voting. They're about winning. Let me repeat that. They're not about voting. They're about winning. Winning. And they try and plot and scheme looking for ways to ensure that they never lose. They already have a permanent government, the administrative state. The swamp, as many call it. They already have that. But that's not good enough. There's myriad ways that our voting system are under attack, and not by Donald Trump. That's my point. Maybe I'll try and explain this on Hannity tonight. There are myriad ways our voting system is under attack, and not by Donald Trump. It's under attack by the Democrat Party. Democrat Party pushes the idea of the National Popular Vote Compact, to destroy the Electoral College system. The Democrat Party seeks to register first in towns and then later, you bet, at the federal level, illegal aliens or non-citizens even more broadly to vote. The Democrat Party promotes a bill every term when the House is controlled by the Democrats to destroy all the protections in our electoral system. The Democrat Party counts the vote after the elections are over. Doesn't require signatures. Doesn't require dates on ballots. When you object, you're said to be suppressing the vote. Donald Trump challenges elections. He raises questions about the elections. He says, let's look for more votes in Georgia. He says, by the way, State legislators, Republicans, you have the ability to send in a second slate of electors. That's our history. Congress sorts it out. And he's facing scores of criminal charges, federal and state. Now, you know, by the way, that Smith and Willis are coordinating. I don't have the list in front of me, Mr. Producer. What cut would that be? I think, it's, I think it's the last one. I want you to listen to this. It's largely overlooked as people are focusing on the fact, and I don't blame them, that the indictment was listed in the morning on the official clerk webpage of the Fulton County Courthouse before the grand jury even met and voted. Now, what does that tell you? That's about as Stalinist as it gets. 
But I want you to listen to this from Fannie Willis. Go. Have you had any contact with the special counsel about overlap between these cases? And do you intend to try all of these defendants together? Do I intend to try the 19 defendants in this indictment together? Yes. And have you had any contact with the special counsel about the overlap between this indictment and the federal indictment? I'm not going to discuss our investigation at this time. You're not going to discuss the investigation. She didn't ask you to discuss the investigation. She said, have you had any discussion about overlap on timing? Not the substance of your investigation. So the fact that she couldn't say no means yes. Now, let me tell you what I think as a matter of logic and reason. This whole damn thing is being orchestrated by Maine Justice, the Department of Justice and the Attorney General of the United States. She's not only had contact, in my view, with the special counsel, Jack the Ripper, in Washington, D.C., she's had contact with the Department of Justice. Her charges, in case you don't know, 30, 97, 98 pages, depending on how you count, they go beyond the borders of Georgia. They go into <laughs> six other states, excuse me. And uh, they even include charges that uh, in his uh, exposition, in his phony indictment, Jack Smith has on the January 6th charges. Now, it's interesting that these prosecutors, when they issue their indictments and when they hold discussions, they never overlap like they both do it on a Tuesday by accident. And when you look at these charges, you can see they fit like a puzzle. Some cover things that the other office didn't cover, just so they can make sure that they have as many charges, many, as many disparate allegations as possible against Donald Trump, making defense almost impossible. And even using the most absurd laws you can even imagine. But there's a similarity in all these indictments as well, the piling on. Over 30 charges in Manhattan. Over 40 charges in Atlanta. Over 40 charges on the documents matter. And of course, the four ridiculous charges on January 6th matter. But that said, when you look at the other three, it's absolute overkill. It's piling on, as we say in the legal profession. Using irrelevant statutes, stretching statutes, using arguments never used in the course of a, an investigation of an election. Piling on. Does this sound like to you like they're legitimately trying to protect you from, from an effort to overturn an election? And what if Donald Trump had succeeded? What if Mike Pence put a two-week pause in place? He'd be doing nothing more than was done in 1876. And what if a second set of electors had been sent? They'd be doing nothing more than they did in 1960 in Hawaii in 1876. Period. And what if Donald Trump truly believes that the outcome of the election was corrupt? He would be doing nothing more and saying nothing more than Hillary Clinton's been saying, than Stacey Abrams has been saying. Doing and saying nothing more than Jamie Raskin has said in the numerous Republican elections. Benny Thompson, 
Democrat after Democrat after Democrat in the House of Representatives, not to mention the Senate. Not to mention Joe Biden, not to mention Al Gore, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton. False claims of fraud? What about John Eastman? What about Rudy Giuliani? What about poor Jenna Ellis? This is a young lady, really of very modest means. She's already spent a fortune defending her law license against this 65 group that's tried to destroy her. She's been on the show, as you know, now indicted in Georgia. For what? For nothing. Nothing illegal, that's for sure. The whole notion, the whole notion of attorney representation, attorney representation, and uh, zealous advocacy is now out the window if you're a conservative Republican. That's now an indictable offense. It's now an indictable offense. So you have lawyers losing their licenses, or at least having them suspended, going broke, trying to defend their careers and their livelihoods, not to mention their reputations. You have a former president. I mean, what else could they do? Non-disclosure agreements. Presidential documents. He's working hard to fight the election. You know, they keep saying overturn the results of an election. The results of an election aren't determined until the Congress says they are. Mark Levin. The Great One makes your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. We're going to have a little bit of fun today. We want to talk ever so slightly about the Constitution. And you're in the right place. You're with Mr. Constitution Man. Uh, And I have to deal with the left, which uh, in the aggregate are called Mr. Constipated Man. But that for another day. So Jonathan Turley and a few of us are a little bit of a hubbub, all friendly, all respectful. There's a writer in Newsweek, I'm afraid, who really doesn't understand what she's talking about. That's okay. So let me do this in a way that is in plain English and starts from the top. Given what the Biden administration is doing to President Trump. Let's say President Trump gets elected president. And he still has all these indictments against him. Or, in one of these jurisdictions, he's been convicted by a jury, not of his peers, of Democrats. What then? Well, we look at the Constitution of the United States, don't we? What does the Constitution of the United States say about this? Absolutely nothing. Because, you see, the Constitution was written for virtuous people. And a virtuous people serving in their government. 
It wasn't written for Joe Biden and Jack Smith and Fanny and the knucklehead in Manhattan. It was written for people who have virtue and they have none. So now what do we do? Well, some of the ground has been laid here in the past, 1973, and in 2000. What do you mean, Mark? The Department of Justice in 1973, in the, re, in the administration of Richard Nixon, had to take a look at this in case Richard Nixon was indicted. In the Office of Legal Counsel, which is the brain trust of the Department of Justice, the office that looks at these issues, gives advice to an attorney general and a president. Look very carefully at the pros and cons. And of course, it acknowledged there's not much in the Constitution that helps us, and there's certainly not much in our history that helps us. Even at the Constitutional Convention, there's nothing on this. So they looked at it, and they went through it very carefully. And I read it. And they concluded, no, not because the Constitution's, Constitution compels it, but you really can't or shouldn't indict a sitting president. Well, why? Because you will wind up decapitating the executive branch. You will undermine the voters who voted for that president. They didn't vote for the vice president to become president. They voted for that president. You will endanger America's national security. You will do all these things because a president cannot possibly effectively be a president and at the same time have time to defend himself and keep himself free. Any citizen would have difficulty doing that, let alone a man who's, who's the head of the executive branch and, in fact, is the best executive branch. He's one-third of our government. Moreover, there are other issues like how would he be able to negotiate with other countries? <coughs> He'd have no respect whatsoever. And what if he's convicted and he winds up in jail? Then what? We well, can always impeach him. Okay, great. But what if you can't remove him? So impeachment is the process by which the framers of the Constitution set up a, a constitutional slash political process for removing a president, not a criminal process. And so they concluded in 1973 that using the best thinking and reasoning and practicality that we possibly can that the official position of the Department of Justice is no, you cannot and must not indict a sitting president. You cannot allow a prosecutor and a grand jury and then later a prosecutor and a trial jury and a judge to determine the outcome of a, not just an election, but also the decision about... <laughs> about whether you remove a president or not. Can you imagine having a prosecutor and a jury 
deciding if a president stays in office or not. So this is the opposite of democracy. Which leads us to Donald Trump. If Donald Trump is elected president, the same argument applies that was argued in 1973 and 2000 that essentially went through all those arguments as well and effectively rubber-stamped the position the government took in 1973. So have a Democrat Department of Justice and a Republican Department of Justice saying no. You really can't indict a sitting president unless you want to destroy the constitutional construct and moreover... You're violating his due process because he can't possibly defend himself. You know, he has to sit with his lawyers for hours at a time. They have to go over depositions. They have to go over documents. They have to go over exculpatory information. They have to go over now texts and emails and on and on and on videos, perhaps a million documents, nine months of videos. That's just one case here. Just one case. And so the fear also was you would open the door to the kind of activity that's taking place today by the Democrat Party. All right, let's stay focused. So does it follow that a president can pardon himself? We don't know. President has never been indicted. A candidate who wins the presidency has never been indicted. Can he pardon himself? Again, you have to look at what is rational, what is practical, the impact it has on the nation. Because the Constitution doesn't tell us. There's nothing to stop a president from pardoning himself. That's number one. Certainly not from federal charges. So, given the, the conclusion of the Department of Justice under different administrations in 73 and 20, that you cannot indict a sitting president, then the conclusion logically follows that a sitting president who is indicted can pardon himself. There's no reason he can't. Now here's the next shoe on this. Having read this opinion in 2000, That includes the 1973 arguments and their own arguments. And they conclude, look, you cannot indict a sitting president because of the dangers the nation faces. Because you will decapitate the executive branch. You will cripple the ability of of an elected president to function and on and on and on. The question is now, if the Georgia indictments stand and Donald Trump's elected president... Can he pardon himself from these state charges? The truth is the Constitution doesn't tell us. In fact, neither do the memos from the Department of Justice. But the Department of Justice, those memos do tell us something. What do they tell us? That the reason, the reason... Why, it's the Department of Justice's position to federal prosecutors that you cannot indict a sitting president is because the dire circumstances that could create in our constitutional system with a decapitated executive branch and without the president being able to defend himself. 
That's their conclusion. That's all there is. It's a rational argument. Some might even call it an equity argument. Whatever the argument is, that's it. So the question then becomes, and I've heard Jonathan Turley say this, perhaps some others, I don't remember who they are, and I have nothing but respect for him, by the way, but a president cannot pardon himself from state charges. Why is that? Well, a president doesn't typically, in fact, he doesn't at all, reach into state charges or convictions based on state law and state judicial systems. And pardon people. It's a federalism thing. We just don't do that sort of thing. And my point is that is wholly and completely irrelevant. That has nothing to do with what the Department of Justice said. We're not talking about Ernie Grabowski down the street. We're talking about elected president of the United States who is the executive branch. Not a guy who's been embezzling funds from a bank and then a president decides, you know, I feel bad for that guy. I'm going to pardon him. So I would agree. No, the president does not have authority to do that. But does he have the authority to pardon himself for the very reasons the Department of Justice said? That you cannot indict a sitting president at the federal level? Am I making any sense to you so far, Mr. Producer? Well, let's step back and take a look at this. Since we're not really talking strictly about the Constitution, we're talking about what happens to the Constitution. Let's step back and take a look at this. There are literally thousands of DAs and assistant DAs, state prosecutors and local prosecutors all across the country. If it is the position that Fannie Willis and Alvin Bragg and the others can get away with, say, prosecuting Donald Trump, even if he's elected president. What do you think would happen to the country then and thereafter, Mr. Producer? In other words, the exposure to destroying the executive branch and the federal constitutional construct is a thousand times worse. So clearly it's an important federal constitutional matter, is it not, America? And surely, let me even throw in Article 6, the Supremacy Clause would apply, would it not, America? As applies to the President of the United States, not Ernie Grabowski, the embezzler, the bank embezzler, in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm not talking about him. And neither was the Department of Justice. They were talking about if hypotheticals involving a president of the United States, how can it possibly be as a matter of practicality and logic that the position of the Department of Justice is you cannot indict a sitting president and it follows from there that he can't pardon himself except if you're a state prosecutor or local prosecutor, then prosecute away. Go ahead. Do it. That can't be right. That makes no sense. So we have a clause in the Constitution that helps us work our way through this. The Supremacy Clause. And the President does have the pardon power 
And so it would follow, it seems to me, without much argument. These are all novel questions because of what the Democrats are doing today. They're all novel questions. But there are better answers than others. It would certainly follow then, based on the conclusion that the Department of Justice reached in 73 and in 2000, that states cannot indict a sitting president, and that if a candidate running for office is indicted and becomes president, that the president can in fact pardon himself. With or without the Supremacy Clause, I think the Supremacy Clause makes it stronger. But for the same reasons that we say federal prosecutors can't indict the president and that a president can pardon himself from federal charges, it's not that complicated. And it's certainly the much stronger argument than the one our friend Jonathan Turley is making. Mark Levin. We're giving you nothing but the best, the best of Mark Levin. There could be over a thousand, over 1,500 people dead from this fire in Hawaii. That in the first instance was caused by an electrical power line. Yet electric is supposed to be our future. Not part of it, all of it. How many fires are caused by or deaths are caused by drilling for oil, gasoline, and transmitting that through pipelines, Mr. Producer? I can't think of many, if any, because natural gas and oil are not only plentiful, they're the safest sources of energy that we have. And so I'm just telling you now, there's going to be all this finger pointing. Well, the utility didn't do what it was supposed to do. Well, the utility said it was focused on green energy. It's moving in that direction. And so that's where it was putting its resources. Look, I don't know who's telling the truth. Doesn't much matter. People are dead. And I want to circle back to this later. But you look at what's happening off the shore of Atlantic City, the Jersey coast, with these massive... Windmills, the death, the degradation of the environment, the whales, God knows, <laughs> God knows what else. You know, we have sure, cheap, plentiful, safe, and yes, environmental, environmentally friendly, natural gas and oil. We're putting those companies out of business. We are reducing the amount of supply. We're eliminating future efforts to discover more supply. We are ceding the entire industry to our enemies, the communist Chinese. And in order to camouflage all of this wrongheadedness, we just use the phrase climate change. Climate change. That's it, climate change. Which takes me to the bigger issue. I watched Bill Barr for about 30 minutes being interviewed by Neil Cavuto this afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern and thereafter. 
And actually, I thought Neil did a pretty good job questioning him. Gave him a lot of time. That's where I disagree with Neil and others. Why? Why? Bill Barr is invited on programs and on networks. They used to hate his guts. Now they can't, they can't schedule him enough. Same with Chris Christie. Chris Christie spends an enormous amount of time on ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN. Well, that's because he goes where he's hated. That's not why at all. He's not hated there anymore. They love him. What's the greatest threat to America? I'm asking you folks this. What's the greatest threat to America? Joe Biden, the American Marxist movements, the Democrat Party, and what they've done to our country? Or Donald Trump? Bill Barr says he can't tell. He doesn't know. He'll jump off that bridge when he gets to it. He's also a plagiarist in that respect, but we'll move on from that. So for Bill Barr, the, the call is too close to make. Chris Christie, the call's too close to make. Mitch McConnell, he prefers Biden over Trump. Peggy Noonan, she prefers Biden over Trump. This is why Republicans always lose to Democrats, and I don't mean politically. I mean the culture. I mean the rule of law. I mean our society. Because if it wasn't Trump, it would be DeSantis. If it wasn't one of them, it would be one of the others. They're very comfortable, they say, with Chris Christie. Chris Christie is, is a rhino. Both physically and otherwise. He's a rhino. People are leaving New Jersey. Not because of the Democrat governor, because of Republican and Democrat governors. He didn't do anything effective there, financially, culturally, in any way. He's a safe Republican. And the Democrat TV networks love the guy. He didn't used to, but he dances and sings for their support. Bill Barr, they were going to impeach him. Uh, They can't get enough of him. Even my brothers and sisters of my favorite cable network, certainly in the news department, they can't get enough of him. And by the way, they can't get enough of Vivek Ramaswamy either. And on a footnote there, why is that? Why is he being pushed so hard? More on that later. Mortgage rates are at a 21-year high, and they're going higher. Interest rates are going higher. The cost of food, 9 out of 10 Americans are saying, is prohibitive. The cost of gasoline, 9 out of 10 Americans are saying, is prohibitive. Utility bills, over 8 out of 10 Americans say it's prohibitive. In other words, Americans are struggling. Nobody walks through a, a city street when the sun has gone down 
regardless of your race, in any major city in America anymore. Nobody. Because you put your life on the line. You may not make it. People are afraid of taking public transportation in every major city in America. The cops have been undermined. The schools are indoctrination mills for the most perverse and grotesque ideology ever embraced even by a fraction of a percentage of the American people. Our economic systems under assault. We have the worst debt in American history. We have a deficit each, each year, which is unbelievable, unimaginable. We're destroying our economy from within. We're not building up the military to confront what is clearly communist China and their move to dominate the world economically and militarily. They just stole an island that's disputed from Vietnam and Taiwan. They're building an air base on it right now as I speak. As they've built a, a spy facility in Cuba. What are we doing about it? Absolutely nothing. This administration, the Democrats, just gave $6 billion to the Iranian regime, which is a genocidal regime that slaughters young people who protest against it, rape them in these Stalinist-like prisons, are giving thousands and thousands of drones to the Russians to, to murder Ukrainian citizens. And are building nuclear warheads to put on their ICBMs. And Biden just gave them $6 billion. The worst censorship in American history didn't happen under Woodrow Wilson. It's happened under Joe Biden. Federal judge said so and spelled it out. Chapter and verse. A circuit court panel said the same thing. They've spelled it out chapter and verse. A clear violation of the First Amendment when the United States government, the Biden administration, and its various departments are pressuring Twitter before Elon Musk came to the rescue to interfere in our elections, to censor scientific information, to punish their political opponents and all the rest. We have the FBI and the Department of Justice that have gone after parents. We have the FBI and the Department of Justice that have gone after peaceful pro-life protesters. We have the FBI and the Department of Justice that have gone after the Catholic Church. They're starting to go after Orthodox Jews. We have a president of the United States who defies every immigration law on the books. And the worst mayhem we've ever seen with illegal immigration were even Democrat mayors and their phony sanctuary cities are overwhelmed, overwhelmed, begging their president to do something about it. And he won't do a damn thing because this is part of the process.
This is what he wants to do. We have women being raped and sold into sex trafficking as well as children on the southern border. We have the drug cartels pulling over, pouring over the border. Every major city in America in all 50 states now has drug cartel operations taking place. MS-13 coming across the border. Fentanyl coming across the border. Illegal weapons coming across the border. We don't have enough time to really figure out exactly the consequences of all this. But it's immense from today on in this country. It's immense. And Bill Barr can't decide who he would vote for if the nominee is Trump or Biden. Chris Christie can't decide who he'd vote for if the nominee is Trump or Biden. Mitch McConnell's already decided he's going to support Biden, no question about it, over Trump. The usual operatives of the Rhino State, the Carl Rose, the Bush sink offense, all the knives are out. All the saboteurs are doing everything they can. Everything they can. And they're going to succeed if they keep it up. They will persuade 10, 15, 20, 30 percent of the Republican Party to vote. Perhaps for a third party or even Biden. When you look at the real conservatives, Bill Barr is no conservative. He doesn't have any conservative credentials. He shows up at Federalist Society meetings, mostly to eat the Danish When you listen to Newt Gingrich, when you listen to Victor Davis Hanson, when you listen to former U.S. attorneys, Brent Tolman, so many others, former special counsel, Saul Weissman, deputy special counsel, when you listen beyond certain of the legal analysts who the newsers go to left and right because they seem to be so impartial. Now is not a time for impartiality. We're in the middle of a revolution. I laid out the bare facts just now. The country's being destroyed. We live in a post-constitutional period where people have to fear for their, for their liberty when they speak out. When they organize, when they purchase weapons, and they're law-abiding citizens, they have to fear for their liberty. They have to fear from a growing centralized police state under the command of the Democrat Party. And Bill Barr can't decide who he'd vote for it. 